You recognize there the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as He was dying on the cross that even in the moment of His great despair, what was He depending upon? The Word of God. The Word cried out using the Word to express His utter despair as a man, undergoing the wrath of God in that moment. And why? Uh, For your sake and for mine. This morning, our sermon text is to be found in Matthew chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 43 to 45. So let's turn there now and give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. My soul clings to the dust. Amen. Would you please be seated? Hopefully we all realize what an extraordinary blessing it is to be born into a Christian home. Um, You have the privilege, uh, by God's grace, of having a father and a mother who day by day direct your attention to the will of God. They, when you have a, a, a trouble in life, they direct you to God's Word. They give you counsel that is according to Scripture. And even when you're not having trouble, they create trouble for you by saying, come and let's sit down. We need to, we need to go to God's Word and, and remember what it says. We need to think about the privileges there. You're a, a Christian father. Uh, make sure that you are faithful in your attendance at worship and to be faithful in your work and service in the church of Jesus Christ. He loves you according to the Word. When you struggle, He points you to the Word. He teaches you the Word. And so, in other words, as as a Christian family and having Christian fathers, what do you find? You're always in the Word. You learn the sufficiency of God's Word. You learn the authority of God's Word. You learn, especially, hopefully, by His example, what it means to live a life in love with Christ. You have extraordinary benefits. Benefits that God appointed to you. Why? Because from before the foundation of the earth, He determined that you would be born into a Christian home. He chose you to receive certain benefits that other children would not have. Why? Because they are born to parents who do not point them to the Word. They don't receive the counsel of the Word. Their fathers never say, you must be in church. And do not provide them with an example of love to Christ. God has given you extraordinary benefits. 
What does that have to do with our passage this morning? Well, when we come to Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, and you read it the first time through, you're going to say, well, this is about, this is teaching us about demons and what demons do and how demons affect and influence the lives of people. And there, there is that in this passage, sort of, but then you get to the very last phrase. Look at it with me again, verse 45. The very last sentence. You see what it says? So also will it be with this evil generation. And then you read that sentence, you go, oh, oh. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving a sort of parable to teach us about Israel's estate in his day. And that's exactly what's happening, do you see? What Jesus is showing you by this little parable is he's teaching you something about the ethnic Jews of his day and what the end of them would be. That's why this applies to us as a covenant people. This is why it applies to you as children maybe who have a friend that brings them to a Wednesday night Bible study so they can learn the Word of God. Remember that God is showing you a special mercy that He doesn't give to everyone. If He has caused you to be born into a Christian home, you celebrate and you say hallelujah, but then you turn immediately and you, and you tremble because you say, oh, what great privilege God has given me. What are you doing with it? Because here is a people who had received the oracles of God. There is a reason that the incarnate Christ came to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, to speak face to face with ethnic Jews. And here he is speaking to them and he is saying, woe to you. Covenant people. You like to talk about the covenant, don't you? Oh, you talk about the covenant on the corners. You talk about the covenant around your dinner table. You talk about the covenant with your friends. You, they say, well, why are you a Presbyterian? Covenant. Well, Jesus is here saying to you, be careful not to talk about the covenant and then turn and disregard it in your life. Here's a people redeemed. When God brought them out of Egypt, that is the, the act of redemption and deliverance of the Old Testament, a picture of what Christ would ultimately come and do, bringing people out of bondage to sin. But then He brings them to, to Mount Sinai, and He says, and here, here's the law. Two things. Always remember that I will forgive you when you sin. I'm going to give you the sacrifices to show you the Messiah who is to come. Forgiveness is always available to you. But don't neglect my law. I'm calling you to be a holy and a righteous and a just people. When, keep my law. When you sin, offer the sacrifices. I will forgive you. And also remember that my covenant is not just for you. In Abraham, I will bless whom? 
all the nations of the earth. So I'm going to plant you in this land. It's a crossroads of where all people come. They trade. They walk through here. Call them to repent. Well, they didn't do that. Oh, they would say, we have the temple. But there was no love for Christ. So that when we get to a place like the book of Hosea, God is saying to His covenant people, you broke My covenant. I divorce you. I put you out. Ichabod. The glory is gone. Jesus is reminding us of the situation in Israel in verses 43-45. to We're going to consider it in three points this morning, but the main point is this, that those who do not apply and grow in the benefits of God's covenant will face harsh judgment and condemnation. If you were baptized as a baby into the covenant community of Christ, remember that that is a blessing and a responsibility. These chapters have changed the tone of Matthew's Gospel. We've gone from observing Jesus' life and ministry to considering the final judgment. Somebody said to me last week, it's going to be a long judgment, isn't it? (laughs) I don't think so. I think it will probably take place pretty quickly, but it's definitely going to be a moment where I think fear is struck in every human heart. We've gone from observing Jesus' life and ministry to considering the final judgment. In chapter 11, He pronounced woes. All you who have seen Me do all these miracles, but you don't repent, woe to you. He accused the Pharisees of not knowing the Scriptures. Haven't you read Exodus Haven't you read? Don't you understand 1 Samuel? He warned against blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, saying, those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the next. And he explained that evil words illustrate an evil heart and that men will give an account for every careless word they have spoken. You can't read these chapters and not come away. I think at least, unless your heart is just totally dull and stony, you can't come away from these chapters and, and, and not, I, I think, have a little bit of conviction. What am I doing with, with God's Word? If He will say this to the covenant community, what will He say to us who are a wild olive tree grafted into Israel. Well, we notice it in three points this morning, and the first thing that we see here is a temporary departure, a temporary departure. Jesus, He describes a circumstance um, here that seems to tie all of this together as we think about chapter 22, uh, chapter 12. Look what He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest. Remember what had happened just a little bit earlier. They they brought to Jesus a man who who was blind and mute because he was demonized. 
And Jesus cast the demon out, and that's what provoked the Pharisees to say, oh, he does this by the power of the devil. Well, Jesus maybe is is calling on this very real illustration in their midst to say, what happens to that demon? What what does it do? Well, it goes out into the wilderness, and you can kind of see it going through these places where there's no no water. Maybe you think of Clint Eastwood and High Plains Drifter, and you've got those heat waves on the surface. That's the kind of place where it, it it is wandering through. This wilderness, it brings imagery That starts out in Genesis. Remember, Cain was forced to wander away from Eden alone. Israel wandered in the wilderness as a result of their disobedience for 40 years. And these examples are brought on when people pursue an unrighteous path to break God's law is to bring a curse upon yourself and to shun true rest. And so this is the picture of the demon. He is in the land of cursing, away from God's blessing. I think really what we think about here, what we are to take away from it, is just a reminder that that Satan is alive and active in the world. Remember, at the very beginning of the book of Job, what's the scene? All the angels are coming before God and Satan presents himself there and God asks him rhetorically, where have you been? He says, what does he say he's been doing? Wandering through the earth. From where have you come from, the Lord says. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We see the the same thing in Job chapter 2. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We have to remember and never forget that Satan is active in the world. There are more powers, more forces at work in this universe than you can see with your eyes. It's not just men and governments at work. Satan is at work as well. And we remember that all men, by nature, are members of whose kingdom? Satan's. By nature, you and I are under Satan's dominion. You're not a child of God by nature. You are a child of wrath. By nature. And so as we think of the victory of Christ's kingdom, we remember that that His kingdom fights against another kingdom. It's not imperial China. It is the kingdom of Satan. And the work of Christ then, by His Holy Spirit, is to reach down and pluck men out of this kingdom. That is the deliverance that He gives to you. He plucks you out of the kingdom of Satan and brings you into His own kingdom, giving you rest. And this is so important for us, isn't it? Because as you watch TV, you read the news, you listen to your podcasts, you see all the evil that is going on in the world and you say, what's wrong with these people? Well, remember that evil people are accompanied by evil forces. 
And that as we are preaching the gospel to the watching world, we are asking the Lord not to not just to help help people come to their right mind. What you're asking is for the Lord deliver men from the kingdom of Satan and his grip. There are evil forces in this world looking for a place to dwell. And so the second point that we see here is the inevitable Return. What happens when you go out into the wilderness? Well, eventually you're going to come back because there's no rest there. And so the demon has a fruitless search. Notice what we read here. What rest does he find? None, according to verse 43. He finds no rest. There is no rest in the land of curse. Those who exist under the curse of God will never ever find true rest. Then the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Under the inevitable return, the demon has gone to the wicked places. He's disappointed. He finds no rest. And so he comes back home, as it were. Notice what he discovers. What's the nature of the man's house now? Well, it's it's clean, it's empty, and he's put it in order. Literally, the idea is uh, when to, to be put in order is to, to be adorned. The, the Greek word is the, the same word that we get the idea of cosmetics from. This morning, um, some of you, uh, you took some time to stand in front of the mirror and you put your uh, whatever goes on first on, and then you put subsequent layers of makeup uh, to adorn yourself, you put your earrings on. Some of us brushed our hair. You, maybe you took a shower. This is the idea. Uh, the temple was adorned with gold and jewels. It's to, it is to clean it up and make it look pretty. And the idea here is that this man, now that the, the influence of his life has gone, the focus comes back and this man has he's taken some time to clean up. There's, maybe there's a little bit of a spiritual revival Right, and, and maybe he starts to pray a little bit and he'll stop talking ugly to his wife or a woman to her husband and, and maybe he thinks about serving in the church occasionally. This kind of thing. He sort of puts things in order. There's a little bit of a spiritual renewal in his life. But I think the important thing is what is in the man when he comes back? Nothing. Nothing. No spirit. No Christ. In other words, that man on the inside, he is just as empty as the wilderness. He is just as dry as the desert. No life. No spirituality to him to speak of. So the demon, he finds that this is a place I can put my feet up the unclean spirit for a time because, because his evil influence sort of went out for a period. The, the evil that the man had was only what was in his heart by nature. And, and so he's able to clean himself up for a little bit. Maybe he's, you know, in his, in his, in his self-righteousness, he's concerned about how he appears in the community, so he becomes a little bit charitable for a period of time. 
But ultimately, he's still in the bondage of Satan. So that when that spirit returns, in he goes. And the evil comes back. I was reading a commentary on this this week, and, and one man said this, he, this sentence that sort of stuck with me. He said, harmlessness is not the same as holiness. You see what he's saying there? Just, just putting evil away from you for a little bit is not the same thing as endeavoring toward holiness. He says, desisting from wrong differs by a whole heaven from being a blessing. What Jesus demands is the entire devotion of the heart so that it will render spontaneous thanksgiving to God and for His sake will be a blessing to the neighbor. You see, there are totally different things from from just saying, I'm going to stop being bad for a little bit and that's the end of my repentance to saying, I'm going to seek to serve others out of love to Christ. I'm going to pursue holiness. I'm going to become active in my sanctification, looking inwardly for the sin that's trying to kill me and kill it, root it out. Wicked men can imitate godliness for seasons. They can't run the marathon, but they can do a a 400 meters. Do you understand? They can't run the marathon race of sanctification, but they can do a 400 meter leg. Wicked men can. They can have seasons in their life where they look really holy. Maybe they attend church every now and then. They clean their house. They adorn themselves with external beauty. But inside, what are they? Empty. Empty of love. Empty of passion. Empty of desire for Christ's glory. Empty of humility, empty of joy, empty of peace, empty of goodness, empty of self-discipline, because the Spirit of Christ is not there. But when you're truly converted, you know what happens? Instead of being inwardly empty, all of a sudden your soul becomes a place that is a fountain of life because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And no longer is it a wilderness, a waste place. It becomes a place where there's the life of Christ and you can sense His love and His goodness flowing out of you. And He can say to you things like, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put on the full armor of God Fight temptation. Live by the Spirit. That is only uh, something that a man indwelt by the Holy Spirit is able to do. Because he's not empty. But Jesus brings us now to the third point, which is the tragic, the tragic end. The demons return 
He goes and he invites his friends to come in. They all take up residence within this single man and he grows in his evil, not only in his ability, but also in his imagination because all these demons are influencing him. And you can imagine the voices, the, the desires that are cultivated within him from, from many different places, a, a perfect chaos within his soul. We find in the end of verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so it will be with this evil generation. I think we all agree it's worse to be indwelt by eight demons than one. The reason isn't given. Why, why is it worse? Numerically, it's simply worse. But you think that the imagination and power of eight unclean spirits, what does it create within this man? Confusion? Chaos? Strength of will? If a threefold cord is not easily broken when it comes to doing righteousness, imagine an eightfold cord doing evil. But the conclusion of Jesus' explanation here on the unclean spirits and the man is that this will be the state for this evil generation. Who's Jesus talking to? Well, he, he's talking to the Israelites who are standing with him at that moment. This is the fifth res- reference to this generation in Matthew's Gospel. They are like children remember, sitting in the marketplaces who are calling out to their playmates in Matthew 11, verse 16. They are evil and adulterous because they are looking for signs. Oh, we'll believe, we'll believe you if you give us something. Show us something. Matthew 12, 39. Jesus told us that they're going to be judged by the Ninevite men. They are going to be judged by the Queen of Sheba at the very end. Matthew 12, verse 41 and verse 42. Remember that at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, it was John the Baptist who looked at these men and called them what? Children of snakes. And Jesus repeated those words in chapter 11, verse 34. And He will do so again before His crucifixion in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. Over and over and over, Jesus is talking to this generation of believers and He is saying to them exactly what they need to hear. You are evil. You're people of the covenant, but your hearts are hard. He's not delivering a clever insult. He has come as the judge of the world, describing these men and their parents as under the dominion of sin and Satan. And and so here's what's important. That that as you read through this part of Matthew's Gospel, remember that that, um, redemptive history doesn't start at Matthew chapter 1. Redemptive history goes all the way back to Genesis. When Jesus appeared on the scene, He came as a prophet, listen, 
in a long line of prophets who did what? They came to Israel and to Judah making overture after overture after overture after overture calling to the people, repent! Turn to your first love. Come back to Me. You are a wicked and adulterous people. Stop what you're doing. As they think about the covenant, God is telling them, you're covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. How do we know? Because you have no regard for My law. You look just like all the people who are around you. There's no holiness. And as you think about these words, this evil generation, what should come to mind is the way that God has always dealt with His people. Generation by generation by generation. The promises that He gave to Abraham were for you and for your children after you. Eternally. When God brought His people out of Egypt in the Exodus... Remember that the first generation, all they did was complain against the Lord. We wish that we were back in Egypt. And what happened? God killed the first generation. And the second generation inherited the promises. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 5. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And He added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live." When Christ, therefore, arrives on the scene, He comes as yet another prophet to Israel in a long line of prophets. And unlike Jonah's mission to Nineveh, where the people repented at His preaching, Israel never did. They refused to repent. They turned to their idols. And so Jesus calls these men and their parents snakes. They serve Satan, not God. And he says to them, it's going to be worse for you at the end than at the beginning. Well, what does this mean? Well, I don't think we know exactly. I think there are a couple of options. I think one option is that perhaps Jesus is referring again to the final judgment. You think it's bad for you now, Israel, because you are under the dominion of Rome? Wait until the final judgment. When the men of Nineveh rise up and the queen of Sheba and all the Gentiles who have been saved by God rise up and condemn you. I tend to think that the exceeding wickedness of this generation would be expressed in their generation. Because you know what's going to happen? In just a few chapters, all these people who are around Jesus 
crowding in to Peter's house saying, would you please touch us? Would you please heal us? Would you have mercy on us? And that he heals them and he casts out their demons. All of these people in just a few chapters are going to crowd around in a little place called Jerusalem. And you know what they're going to say then? Kill him. Kill him. They will beg for his criminal prosecution and capital punishment. And so the end is worse than the beginning. What Jesus shows us in this passage is that those who do not apply and grow in the benefits of God's covenant will face a harsh judgment and condemnation. And so even, listen though, here's the thing. Even at this moment, in history, Christ was looking at this people and saying what? Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Now maybe the Lord this morning has convicted you that you've been living superficially. Maybe you've been thinking, I have all the benefits of the covenant. I'm a member of the covenant. I was baptized. I remember the age that I was baptized or the moment that I was baptized. I remember going through catechism class and learning them all, and I still have them hidden in my heart. Maybe you're saying, I know the Westminster Confession of Faith like the back of my hand. But inside... There's no fire, no hunger for holiness, no love for Christ and His people. You're more content being out there than you are in here. And the Lord has convicted you. As you think about Israel's state during Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit has has maybe awakened a conviction in you. That you've never truly applied Christ to your life. Jesus invites you to repent and turn to Him. Even in the words of the prophet Joel, yet even now declares the Lord, turn to Me. Don't tear your garments. Tear your heart. Jesus invites you to repent. He invites you to confess your sins. Why? So that He can humiliate you? No. So that He can give you rest. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for the overwhelming kindness that You have shown to us each and every day of our lives. Even if we didn't have Christian parents, how much more kindness have You shown by venturing outside the ordinary means and grabbing us by our heels, as it were, and delivering us from Satan's dominion. Lord, we ask that You would enable us now to live for Your glory, to put aside every sin that hinders us so that we might run the race faithfully. And for my brothers and sisters, maybe who have been wandering away from the faith, I ask that You would reignite love for Christ in their hearts. Bring them back to faithfulness in Your church. We ask this for the sake of Christ's glory. Amen.